Rocky Mountain makes down We're talking music in your hometown Other places too Welcome, welcome All are welcome here Rocky Mountain makes down Welcome to the Rocky Mountain Mixdown from Doghouse Music Studios in beautiful Lafayette, Colorado. Um, this is Liz Vasco. I'm here today with Mr. John Remington. Um, we also have in the studio with us our esteemed uh, intern, Emily. And um, our special guest this week is Gwen. So Emily and Gwen actually are in the same program at CU Denver in Recording Arts. Um, and we're very excited to have both of them here for another Non-Dudes in Music episode. I'm Gwen. Um, I've been producing electronic music since I was about 14 years old. Um, have been sort of in and around the Denver electronic music scene for the past five years. Um, I produce electronic music and also DJ under the alias Libeshe now. That's L-I-B-U-S-E. Um, oh, like your email address. Yep. Oh, and Libeshe. then I also, um, before that, I was um, DJing and producing under the name Cube, K-U-B-E, which is a play on my last name. Um, but I changed that around when I, I went through my gender transition and wanted to update my alias to reflect yeah. that. Um, oh. As far as other stuff goes, um, I'm a student with Emily at CU Denver in the recording arts program we have there. Um, I've been there for, yeah, I've been there for five years. And I'm about to graduate in three weeks as of recording. I will be graduated by the time this goes out, which is terrifying. So, (laughs) Employers, take note. (laughs) Yes, please hire both of us. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Does Libeshe stand for anything? Um, So Libeshe, the name is actually taken from um, my Czech heritage, which I have entirely on my dad's side. My family is half Czech. And uh, Libeshe is sort of this... um, semi-mythical princess who supposedly foresaw the um, the city of Prague before it became Prague as we know it today as this grand city. Um, I wanted a name that, you know, had some of some elements of stuff that really inspires me um, when I think about making music and making, you know, um, as we've been, we were talking about before the podcast, I really love sort of very atmospheric music stuff that verges on ambient, but then mixes in some more traditional, like, danceable elements like breakbeats and stuff like that. And sort of the the fantasy mythos milieu of the name Libeshe really fit with that. And then the connection to um, my family and sort of the, you know, the heritage that I come from was also a cool, cool addition there. That is cool. Have you been to Prague? Uh, yeah, I actually oh. lived in Prague for um, the reason I've taken five years to graduate is because I spent a year living in Prague um, in from <laughs> from May uh, or sorry from September of 2017 to May of 2018, um, and I was there studying um, sort of just Czech history, learning the language. Um, I met some old relatives. Our side of the family hadn't met for about 150 years, um, and you know while I was there, I also got my job. Um, in the music industry that I currently do, which is as a freelance writer, I help um, a number of record labels and artists in Europe, um, people who speak English as a second language, market their music in English. Um, I write press releases and artist biographies and the like um, for labels from Hungary, Portugal, Austria, Russia, 
um, Czech Republic, Germany, and a couple other places throughout the EU and Europe um, larger. That is so neat. I will say all of your emails were so well written when we were going back and forth to, to set you up as our guest. And when you told me that in your final email that you did that, I was like, oh, I could definitely... You have a yeah. I a like gift. I like to write words pretty much as much as I like to write music. Actually. Oh, nice. So it. So does John. Yeah, it, <laughs> it comes nicely, and it's wonderful, you know, to be able to work in the music industry that way. You know, in a way that like it's not just about me and my music as an artist. I'm also helping um, work with other artists. Um, the only downside is that I've met only like one or two of my clients in person ever. Um, I'm hoping to go back out there after college, after pandemic, maybe in a couple of years and, you know, actually do some networking and actually meet all the people I've been writing for for the past three years. So I don't know that we, we've never had anyone definitely on the show who's really has an international perspective on the music industry. So that's really cool. Is it, what is sort of the culture on like needing to release things in English or kind of be serving an English speaking audience? Um, I mean, for the most part, it's, you know, English is kind of the trade lingua franca of the world and that, you know, comes over to English as well. Um, all, for the most part, you know, the artists I'm working with um, speak English very well, you know, message me in English, right? I do not speak Hungarian and Russian and all these other different languages. Um, <laughs> I do speak a bit of Czech still, and then I'm also currently studying Mandarin, um, which is sort of a passion project for me. But um, as far as working in English goes, you know, most of what it is is that it's very different from, you know, talking casually in English to writing something more formal in English, right? And so that's a lot of what I bring to the table. It's just the fact that I've grown up, you know, writing, speaking English as my first language. And so as a result, I know how to, um, or I have the ability to, you know, help them put their artist bios and thoughts into um you know, into English, which is helpful because especially when you have somewhere like Europe, right, you have this sort of um, trans-European scene that's going on, right? And you have all these people, different people from all these different countries speaking all these different languages, like playing in each other's countries and, you know, there's festivals all over the place and stuff like that. And so, you know, having marketing materials in English is like, instead of having to write a bio in everyone's first language for all the countries of Europe to do marketing, right? It's like, most everyone in that industry can read and speak um, English enough to the point where they can, you know, get the understanding and the message across um, from, you know, reading someone else's bio or the press release that comes with the album or the EP or the single when it comes out and hits the promo inboxes. So, um, so it's mostly, it's sort of helpful as sort of a, a unitary um, sort of a standard for marketing. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I could see too with the kind of music that you make, it's also very international. So you kind of just have that in a lot of aspects of what you do is that global view of Exactly. Music. Yeah, I um it's been a struggle for me even going so far back as like 15, 16 that so many of my favorite artists um have never toured in America. Um <laughs> never come here, right? Never um, and so that was actually one of the great things about living in Prague for years that I was really able to immerse myself in the music scene, which, um, which I really love and like the specific niches that I find. That's not to say it doesn't exist over here. And we do have some great, um, local organizations like the Black Box down in Denver, mm -hmm. um, sort of our last independent music venue for electronic music here in Denver. Um, I play there fairly often. I live pretty close down the street. 
Um, so that's my home in Denver. And then, um, but it's super cool to see um, sort of, especially recently, there's, you know, the past 10 years have been dominated a lot by commercial electronic music culture in um, America, but that hasn't been entirely bad because the more people, more people are getting into electronic music and just there's so much of it out there that everyone's spreading into these little niches over time. And so we're starting to see sort of the smaller niches for electronic music really start to find little spots to flourish around America and not just in uh, in Europe. And so there's starting to be more of that um, across the pond, as you, as you will, collaboration and um, awareness of different artists and different genres. So. And then it's nice that there's, to support that, like this really enormous, like global fan base that's like, mm -hmm. yes, we want to, we'll listen to it from any, you know, people don't really seem to be like, it has to be from this one place, mm -hmm. like they're open. Well, and I think that's, you know, one of the unique and wonderful things about electronic music too, is that it's a, it's a musical style that is so transmissible via the internet, right? Everyone, it's still super fun to go see your favorite artist, whether they're performing a live set or they're D DJing, right? Um, but it's not so much as a band where like, you know, if you're seeing a band live, right, it's a very different experience than just listening to their recordings. Um, but you can get a lot of the vibe from an electronic artists from just listening to their recordings or people will record DJ sets and put them online, right? It's a culture that sort of grew up with the internet um, as the internet was coming into being in the 90s, especially 90s and early 2000s. And so there's all these standards of transmission for electronic music that help it to be so global. And so like, even though there's a bunch of artists I haven't seen, I don't feel like I'm missing out because I can still hear the music and their DJ set performances and stuff like that on places like SoundCloud. They put stuff up on Bandcamp. Um, you know, there's a bunch, there's a great um, internet scene for all of this, so. And like, even just outside of electronic music, music's just becoming so globalized. Like now some of the most popular artists, their music isn't entirely in English, like K-pop and Bad Bunny, for example. Which I think for the U.S. is like a big change. It doesn't seem like we've had a huge, especially as a whole, obviously there's pockets, but as a whole, we haven't really, most people don't listen to music in other languages. Uh -huh. Well, and I think like, you know, if you look back in 60s, 70s, 80s, the U.S. was the market to break into from you know, the outside world. But so a lot of stuff was always like, it was sung in English because it was catered to the U.S. market, right? You know, you look as far back as the Beatles trying to break into the U.S. market or, you know, the ska invasion or the, you know, electronic music coming from, um, you know, coming from Europe early on, you know, there is, there's always like, how can we break into America? And that's actually still part of what I work with, with um, when I do my press releases, right? Um, still these niche genres, it's like, how can we get to the place where it's actually like we can make money by doing a U.S. tour? Because we know we have fans there. We know we have all this stuff, but it's expensive to tour over here, even if you're an electronic musician who doesn't have to carry around as much gear as your you know, traditional band. Mm -hmm. So Yeah. Um, and in terms of kind of like COVID or, or even before now, like the just live stream culture, do you see a big, I don't know, outbreak of like live streaming for – like international, are there like platforms that people know they're going to like Twitch or? Yeah, I've definitely seen a bunch of people starting to migrate to Twitch within the electronic music community. Um, I actually myself have found that I'm not huge on, um, you know, watching live streams for the most part. 
um, at least of, you know, people DJing because I'm like, oh, I could just listen to that, like recorded on SoundCloud. The, the live stream performances I have watched have been bands or singer songwriters or people that I like where I want to see more of that performance. Right. Um, but I, you know, I think I have seen people migrating to Twitch a bit. And also, you know, one of the main things that I've seen really in the electronic music industry has been this push to, you know, support artists and labels by buying their music with things like Bandcamp Fridays, right? When Bandcamp is diverting all of their usual revenue share back to the labels and the bands and the artists that are making things and, um, you know, other initiatives in the electronic music community where we're really sort of rallying around. Um, I think label culture is a really big thing in electronic music that maybe doesn't happen quite as much in, um, I, at least from my perspective, right, in like rock music or stuff like that, where you end up with these labels that are really looked to as curators for, and like people, there are people that are fans of this label and they will buy everything that they put out because they know that it's going to be good, right? And then um, there's a huge resurgence in vinyl pressing in the electronic music industry as there is sort of everywhere right now. That's been great for artists to have a way to sort of, you know, sell their music um, more than just the digital files. So, so the label culture has really helped us out, I think, a lot. Cool. I would like to pivot a little bit to kind of talk more about um, your recording arts program that you're both in. And um, it's neat to think that you're coming into that program with like a really different perspective probably than a lot of other students because you've lived abroad and you make music. And um, I think just from some of the interns we've had, I think people generally like this is kind of when they're starting to do those things. It seems like you kind of did it the other way. You did it and then you decided to do the program. Yeah, it's interesting. I definitely, you know, because I knew, like I started making music at 14, um, which was the death of my ambitions to uh, be a robotic scientist. Um, because I discovered it when I hit about algebra two that math is not my favorite thing in the world anymore. Um, but so, and it, you know, I started making music. I, you know, played in band and orchestra. I played violin since I was 10 and stuff like that. Right. So I knew that I really enjoyed music and I kind of just, it was around that time that, you know, like dubstep really hit America and I got into that. It's, you know, Skrillex and Dead Mouse, and all the same way that a bunch of other kids my age did at that time. Um, and so I think, you know, coming, I, I knew what I wanted to do um, with my college career by the time I was like, um, you know, 15. Um, now my parents were also very instrumental in, you know, making sure that I was going to go to college. Um, <laughs> so, um, so they definitely helped with that. But yeah, although there's a, I think there's a good population and I'm sure Emily can, you know, weigh in on this at CU Denver in our recording arts program that, you know, a lot of people come into it knowing where they want to work in the industry, whether that's making music whether that's working in a studio, producing for bands, whether that's live sound, I think our program kind of caters to that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like I've seen, I feel like it's kind of our program's a little atypical to the, I guess, general college experience. A lot of people in our major actually aren't fresh from high school. They, they've worked in the industry for a few years or they're deciding they want to get into this after a few years of doing other things. So they started from a career and now are going back to school and that's really great to see. And so I guess my experience, I, I started college straight out of high school and I didn't really have a lot of music industry experience. I didn't, I didn't really have any substantial music written. I didn't have a lot of experience outside of like classical orchestra. 
And so when I went to college and I saw all these people, like they had bands, they were, they were actually performing, they had music legitimately released on Spotify and stuff. I kind of felt like I was behind. I was like, I feel so behind to everyone else. Everyone else is significantly older than me because they went back to school. <laughs> they, they already have all this stuff released. They actually know what they want to do, which section of the industry they want to work in. They have all this knowledge and experience, and I don't have that. And I just felt so behind to everyone. It was kind of daunting. <laughs> yeah. I, I also went to CU Denver. And that's one thing I think is really awesome about CU Denver is it caters to people who aren't necessarily on, like, that specific track of, like, high school, college, whatever. If they, like, a lot of people are working. I think they, like, take that into consideration, which makes it neat. And it's right downtown, so you're, like, you just feel like you're actually in the city and, like, out in the field a little bit yeah, more. Yeah, and I think nice. you can really see that attitude reflected in our professorial staff, too. Um, so many of our professors are people who you know, went and worked in the music industry for the first, you know, 10, 15, 20 years after college. And then, you know, through one way or another, we're like, oh, I actually would really enjoy teaching this. And then they came back, did a master's and then started teaching um, at the university or something like that. Um, I know one of my professors that I had during my time um, at CU Denver, Vince Pasquale, um, who's one of our primary auto production teachers, um, was actually completing his master's as he was teaching at CU Denver. And he'd worked at um, the Hit Factory in Miami with uh, people like Timbaland and Jay-Z and Lil Wayne and stuff like that, right? So I remember, you know, probably one of the funniest memories I had is, you know, one day in class, you know, we just got in and he's like, okay, here's Justin Timberlake's vocal stacks. And here's how, um, like, this is a project file I worked on with him. And here's like, look how many, the man uses like 20 layers to get those like, you know, the Justin Timberlake sound, right? And so um, that's one of the great things about the staff there. And I think that reflects on the students is like, it's not just the students who are coming in maybe with some experience, but the staff too. Mm -hmm. Like they just have their whole, I guess, suitcase of examples just to pull from. Like it goes beyond Vince too. Like so many of them just have just extensive past experience that they can actually show in class. Like, here's a real session. Here's how it actually looks. Here's how it basically goes down. And that's just so nice to get that experience. John, did you have that? Like, was that sort of your experience at, in school t for recording? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I went to uh, Berkeley in Boston. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a similar thing where it's like you get the actual examples and the really passionate people. Uh, you're more into sound design though, right? Uh, less than like sound capture. Cool, yeah. So the sort of the heart and soul of where um, where my fascination with music comes from is um, really in the performance aspect of it. Um, you know, like I said, I played in school bands and orchestras to start and then I started DJing. Um, I did my first DJ set when I was 16. Um, sort of have just kept going on that in and around Denver. Um, and, you know, a couple of times out of state in lovely Wichita, um, for my first out of state gig. Um, but, you know, I mean, that was a great experience because, you know, you live in Wichita, there's not a lot of electronic music. So the people that come out there are really about it, right? So, um, but, you know, for me, I, you know, the studio work is is cool. It's fascinating to me. But I am really fond of you know, making my music, performing my music, and then also helping other artists directly who are making performing theirs, which is sort of what I do with my writing, right? 
And so um, I think the, you know, sitting in the studio like we are here and doing the kind of work that you guys do, it's a little analytic for me um, in terms of just the way that I like to work. I actually, I was talking to um, the people that were here before um, we started this recording and we, you know, I was talking about how I make pretty much all of my electronic music outside of the computer and then just record it into my DAW, right? So I don't actually, I really had to move away from, um, you know, just sitting at my computer and like drawing in MIDI notes and stuff like that because it was killing my creativity. Um, and I, as soon as I was able to start like twisting knobs and pressing buttons and playing keys and stuff like that, that's where I really found um, passion again in my music after sort of a three and a half year long hiatus sort of that was through most of college for me um, about, you know, just feeling like I had crazy writer's block because I'd sit down on my computer and be like, I'm not inspired, right? But as soon as I can fiddle with stuff, it's all better. So so that's where, as far as my music making goes, that's a huge part of it, right? Is being able to perform, being able to fiddle, tweak, patch, right? All of that stuff. Cool. Um, so is there like a, in the acoustic music world, there's kind of that distinction between the album and the live performance, you know? And there's almost an obsession around that, like... Um, I'm a Talking Heads fan and um, remain in light. A lot of people were upset about that tour because it sounded nothing like the studio work. Do you find that there's that kind of a thing going on in electronic music Definitely. as well? Um, a lot within the, the parts of electronic music that I um, sort of find myself making music with and a lot of my favorite artists. Um, I think I was talking about earlier how like electronic music doesn't necessarily have to be seen live. And that's still definitely true, even for a lot of the artists that I like. Um, you know, you'll see people, oftentimes in the electronic music industry, for people that do both on a booking, you'll see either like, you know, so-and-so DJ set or so-and-so live set, right? And so the DJ set is sort of like, you know, that's going to transfer pretty well to a recording on, you know, SoundCloud or whatever. You can just go listen to that. But seeing someone live is generally them with synthesizers, with their drum machines, with, you know, making music live on Ableton, if that's something that they like to do. Right. There's so many different avenues for live electronic music, but that's been something that has become more common in the past 10 years, I'd say, in the um, electronic music scene, in part because sort of our our studio software has you know been able to match that need. Right. Obviously, Ableton is like leading the charge there with their performance features for in the box stuff. And then there's been a resurgence of this idea of the synthesizer as existing outside of the computer after sort of, you know, when we got DSP in the 90s, everyone was like, oh my God, we can put everything in the computer, right? And that was really cool for a lot of people for a while, but now people are like, oh my God, like sort of me, it's like, oh my God, I'm tired of sitting at my computer all the time. And so we're seeing a migration back out to um, synthesizers that people like to fiddle with like I do. And so there the live show definitely does have sort of that same sort of cult following um for specific artists that you know like the talking heads might have mm -hmm. oh cool um you mind telling us a bit about your setup your gear uh yeah like so um so right now like i said i'm sort of just working on making that transition um myself currently i use an arturia drum brute drum machine it's a fully analog drum machine um with 10 channels of drums on it sort of modeled after the 808 909 Roland series, right? So nice big punchy kicks. It's got a master distortion that you can lay on, really sort of make things nice and gritty, glue stuff together. Really, really like that. Um, I also have a microcorg, which I adore. 
um, classic digital synthesizer, really capable of making some fascinating textures. Um, I will tend to use it as sort of a, a backing um, backing track in my, you know, like a texture and atmosphere, a pad, something like that in my music. Um, I have a Moog Workstat, which is a little tiny box of um, just one oscillator, single synth voice, um, really cool for little bass drones and stuff like that. And also um, outputs to Eurorack standard, which gets me to currently my project right now is I'm building a Eurorack modular synthesizer um, so that I can just patch and turn knobs with abandon. Um, for listeners who are not familiar with the Eurorack idea, right? It's sort of like building a synthesizer on your own. You're building, you get the oscillator and you get the filter, you get the envelope, you get a sequencer, right? And you build that all together and then you can patch it around in all these ways that no one in their right mind would if they were just building a regular hardware synth, right? Um, and you can make really cool noise and it's very creative. Um, it's sort of both a hobby and a, a music making thing for me. The other thing that I've been using very frequently is this free software called VCV Rack, which is an emulation of that in the computer, um, where you are actually patching cables around in the computer. So it's just, it's a non-traditional DAW is what I call it. Um, but I've made a lot of music in there recently because it gives you that freedom and it's sort of like fiddling, but it is much less expensive than an actual modular synth uh, because most everything on there is free. Um, there's you know thousands of modules that you can download for it for free on that software. And it's a really great introduction to making music that way. So that's been sort of my my interim as I move from in the box to out of the box production. Yeah, I know. I think a lot of people love hearing about gear and setups and stuff. Mm -hmm. So thank you for sharing. I know some people keep it very close to the chest. Of course. No, I, <laughs> I love to evangelize sort of the gear that I use because I'm like, I think it'd be super cool to, you know, we have this, you know, I think my generation of electronic music producers, you know, we grew up hearing about things like Serum and Omnisphere and uh, Silent and all, all these like famous soft synths, right? Um, and we're starting, as we're starting to see people go back towards the hardware side a little bit in the industry, it's cool to think about, you know, the next generation growing up and they're like, oh, I want to, you know, find a microcorg and, you know, start making music that way and then go in the box if they want or stay out of the box, right? And so continue to just sort of say, you know, there's a lot of ways to make electronic music out there. None of them is, the only one that's right is whichever one you find most enjoyable, so. Um, so another piece of your bio that caught my eye that I wanted to definitely talk a little bit about on the podcast is um, your human-centered design major. So you're a double major? Or you uh, have my human-centered design is a minor for A me. minor, cool. Um, so my, um, my focus there is, you know, like I said, as far as uh, the recording arts go, I have a big fascination with, um, you know, artists and performance and stuff like that. But on the flip side, when I do think about the more technical stuff, I'm really fascinated by acoustics and the um, human-centered design plays into that. There's an, this idea that I'm working with about, you know, how can we make, how can we bring acoustics out of the studio environment or the movie theater or the concert hall and bring it more every day into people's homes? Um, you know, I think about how if you want to, say if you're going to like soundproof your home, you'd probably call a professional acoustician who would charge you a lot of money and, you know, do all this arcane science, right? Um, but if you're, if you want to decorate your home with art to please your visual sense, you probably just put up whatever looks pretty to you, right? And so the idea for me is 
to bring that same sort of approach to acoustics by, you know, making things that allow people to affect an acoustic difference in their home, their work, you know, their social spaces, if we're looking at like things with communities or, you know, city governments, stuff like that, um, to the point where you don't have to hire some specialist to, right? You wouldn't hire, you know, some people do hire interior designers, but it's not a necessity, right? And I think that in the same way that we use our eyes to look at pleasing visual things, we, use, we can use our ears to look at or hear pleasing sounds, right? And think about the ways, like what sounds in our house do we like? What sounds do we hate? Um, this whole idea sort of came about for me because I have a very noisy refrigerator and I was writing an essay about soundscapes and I was getting increasingly irritated as the refrigerator was buzzing in the background. You know, it was like August, start of the semester um, a couple of years ago and it was just, you know, going and going and going and you know, I generally think of myself as a very sound sensitive person. It's driving me nuts. And I was like, what if we could do something about this, right? What if I didn't have to have this noisy refrigerator? And what if that didn't mean, oh, just buy a new refrigerator, right? What if that meant like, oh, I can, you know, put something up or stick something on a refrigerator or something like that to, um, you know, affect that difference for like 25, 50, 75 bucks as opposed to new refrigerator cost. I love this idea so much. As Kenny knows, I, I also think I have a lot of sensitivity to sound. Um, but I also think it's nice. It would be a nice other layer of your home or, or any space where you can give someone a, an experience, like you're hosting them in every way, all five senses. Yeah, that's actually one other space that I really think about a lot is like restaurants, right? Um, you go into a restaurant and like, what sounds do you want to hear? You know, maybe if you're at a hibachi steakhouse, you really want to hear the grill going and, and the sound of the cook with the knives, like chopping stuff up and flipping stuff around. And um, But maybe you're at a more, you know, relaxed, intimate restaurant and you want to hear, you know, sort of just the warmth of conversation, but you don't want to hear each conversation too loudly so that it really, like, is interrupting yours, right? And so there's a lot of ways that we can think about, you know, shaping rooms that we exist in for, you know, to be a pleasurable oral experience um, in terms of our, um, the way we hear the room as in, in the same way that we think about, you know, the way we see the room. I know I've always, I've always had that idea with bathrooms since they're like these little caves usually. Um, there's so much you could do. Just you step into a bathroom and then you're sort of sealed off and what do you hear? What do you smell? What do you see? Yeah, well, and there are caves wow, yeah. full of hard reflective surfaces that, you know, we all as as musicians and studio workers and um, people knowledgeable in acoustics, right? Like they, you know, bathrooms, if you're, especially if you're in a big public bathroom at like an event center or something, it's pretty noisy in there and it's not exactly the most private feeling space. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not a grotto. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's what I always like to imagine a bathroom as. Mm -hmm. Nice grotto, yes. <laughs> Your house sounds so lovely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Stepping into the grotto. Well, yes. oh, well, we, we all wish for our own <laughs> private bathroom grotto, right? Right. Yeah. 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 Um, That's awesome. Yeah. I, I wonder if two museums and spaces like that will start to, could start to really create these full body experiences for people. Yeah. Definitely. I think Meow Wolf is an, sort of an institution that's very much leading that charge in terms of thinking about, you know, engaging design. You know, it's sort of, I think they're like a theme park, right? But like theme park design for all five senses, right? So it's not just like, oh, well, I'm going to the theme park to ride a roller coaster and just get like thrills, right? It's, but it's like, oh, this is, it sounds really interesting in here. Or this room f is full of things that feel like unusual textures or stuff like that. 
Um, and I definitely, I love the idea of sort of a holistic approach to design for all the senses. Um, in my own home, I'm a huge uh, proponent of incense for that reason. I, so I love to burn incense in my home for, you know, as a way to engage the sense of smell in the room. And it's the same thing with thinking about engaging the ears. Mm-hmm. That's neat. Is that, um, so for that minor, for that program, human-centered design, mm-hmm. Do people really pick whatever facet they want to focus on or like what do you learn about? Yeah, so it's actually um, that is through the this program Inworks at CU Denver, um, which is located right on the corner of 14th and Larimer. Um, but we sort of one of the wonderful things about Inworks is it's human-centered design, but a part of human-centered design is full interdisciplinarity. And so there is this idea that, you know, the best advances in human-centered design come when we take all these, you know, disciplines that we think might be completely disparate and we smash them into each other and see what happens, right? So for me, it's taking, you know, recording arts, sound, acoustic stuff and thinking about designing public spaces. You know, there are other people, um, a big part of InWorks' work is done within the biotech field um, in partnership with Anschutz. We have a InWorks office at Anschutz as well. Um, and a lot of stuff like rapid print, 3D printing, rapid fabrication, rapid prototyping of biotech materials, um, things like printing, um, you know, microscopic stents for blood vessels in the heart, um, things like modeling um, human tissue in a 3D printed, right? So for doctors, right? instead of having to look at like a cross-section of the tissue on like a screen or paper, right? You actually see the, you know, sort of in 3D as it's printed out, right, from a scan of the whatever area that they're going to be working on. Um, Thinking about ways that we can, um, that we can affect or that we can help to, um, you know, make the biotech field uh, easier to work in, Um, especially with the fact that CU has Anschutz Research Hospital as an attachment to it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually studied city planning at CU Denver, and we did a lot around um, what would cities look like if they were really designed for people <laughs> instead of for cars or for fire trucks or whatever it is. And it's I love um, classes like that where you just change your perspective of how could things look if we were really focusing on sound or how yeah. if we were really focusing on people walking or, you know, whatever it is. Well, and then the, and the prime tenet of, like, the thing that's at the basis of all human-centered design is it works from the bottom up. You, The first thing you do is you talk to your end user, right? Yes. You talk to the person that's actually going to be, you know, living in the space that you're treating with sound or you're talking to the person that's actually working with the biotech you're making, right? So instead of looking at people and be like, oh, it seems like they have this problem and I'm going to make something to fix it. You're like, you go to people and you say like, okay, so what are the problems you're working with here? Um, Like, what do you need? And so when I think about going in and doing this work with sound, right, it's about going in and, you know, and asking people like, you know, you go to a restaurant and say, so like, what sounds are you trying to bring out in this, in your space, right? Do you want it to be sort of feel open air and, you know, very sort of um, non-reflective? Do you want it to feel sort of a little bit closed in and cozy, right? Those sorts of things. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Chipotle actually has pretty good, I don't know, like they they, <laughs> they worked on their design, you know? Yeah, their acoustics so you, or something. Yeah, you go in there and it's like, oh, this is actually pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Like I know sometimes they'll drop on the, the ceiling. ceiling. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. They're thinking about us as we eat our burritos. <laughs> yeah. They want us to be happy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, well, and I think, I think a lot of times, like if you think about your favorite restaurants, whether or not they did that on purpose, they probably actually 
have some property of the space that they're in is actually causing there to be a nice sound or something about the way they laid out the tables and stuff like that. So I think people are already thinking about this, even if they're not thinking about like actively like designing for sound, right? In a lot of places, a lot of the spaces that we most like as humans probably sound better than the spaces that we're like, oh God, I have to, you know, go to this meeting in this meeting room where I can hear the air conditioning buzzing all the time or something like mm. that. Well, don't that I remember reading, I don't know, a couple of years ago or something about the cone of silence within restaurants where it's like the table, you can turn on and off the sounds around you almost. Is that is that something that's actually real or um, aren't they dreaming? Well, so I do know um, there's a company called Biamp that's based out of Pennsylvania that is sort of doing the opposite of that. They call them like spotlight speakers, right? And they're they're marketing them a lot towards like museums, right? As a way they're you know, if you've been to a museum or like a, you know, sightseeing place and you wear those headphones for the audio tour, right? But instead of that, it's a speaker that projects sound in a very narrow area so that like when you're standing in front of the Mona Lisa, you're actually here, you like, it's, you don't have to wear the headphones, but you're getting the audio guide, but people standing five feet away from you aren't hearing it, right? Um, I don't know, I've never experienced that technology, but I know it's something that I did run into. So I don't know if the cone of silence exists, but definitely the cone of very narrow sound exists. Got it, yeah. It's kind of blowing my mind. I was wondering if you knew anything about that. I was like, how's that even possible? <laughs> <laughs> I know. And like that, kind of you, it would be neat to step out. Step in. Step yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's cool that you brought up the, the soundscape paper a little earlier ago. I remember doing that paper and I was sitting outside and to bring up what you said about um, city planning, Liz, I remember I was sitting outside and there's a, I was on campus and there's like a freight train that goes right behind campus mm -hmm. and all the time you would just hear the the horn it would just blast so loud and then you could hear downtown a few blocks away and I remember it was just kind of a stressful sound like I'm sitting on campus alone it's like a Saturday so it's empty but I'm still hearing all of this just loud chaotic noise and it's just kind of stressful I remember I was, when I lived in the dorms freshman year mm -hmm. I didn't need an alarm because the light rail went by at 9 a.m. and oh, the honked its yes, horn right exactly so. yeah because I lived in the dorms too and and the dorm is right next to that freight train and the light rail mm -hmm. so like at 2 a.m. you'd be like W line to golden and I'm like <laughs> what <laughs> and then you'd hear the loud train horn and mm -hmm. just to think like how that entire area could be better designed to try and eliminate some of that noise. Well, and it's really interesting too because, um, you know, as humans, if you live there for like a year or so, you, you, we get used to that stuff, right? You, the train exists in the background, but you tune it out. Um, but that doesn't mean it's not affecting us. Uh, I did some research actually, um, or have done some research for this project I'm working on um, with Anschutz Medical Center about looking at um, VR and audio within their children's hospital space um, to help kids feel more comfortable with their environment. But while I was doing research for that, I came across, you know, things such as children that live on the bottom floors of high rises actually uh, regularly test lower on scores of reading and audio comprehension than children that live on higher floors of apartment and high rises because the constant sound from the road or, you know, trains or whatever is going on outside of the apartment actually interferes with their understanding, you know, especially as kids when we're learning so much from the way our parents are talking around us, right, or older siblings, it actually interferes with that on a developmental level and they end up a little bit behind when they enter into school. Wow. 
Wow. Just because their nervous system is doing all this background work of like filtering Yeah, you're doing out. all this back processing to filter yeah. out and try to catch the bits of, you have to try a little harder to catch bits of conversation and stuff like that. That's so interesting. I know. I, I remember when you brought that up in class a couple weeks ago. And I was thinking, because I live in a tall apartment building downtown and I was like, well, I have my AC going, which is just loud and annoying in the background, but I've kind of tuned it out by now. And then the street traffic, tune that out too. And then like I turned off the AC to try and eliminate some of that. And I just like my mood instantly improved. And exactly. I was like, wow, it, it like it's it's hard to comprehend because you're like, what? How does that? And then you actually do it and you're like, no, I, I actually um I don't use air conditioning in the summer because it just gets to me too much. Um, I am fortunate to live in a half basement level apartment, so I do get a little bit of natural AC there, but I can't, I have a window AC unit, um, that I pulled out basically a few days after I moved into my apartment about three years ago, cause I just couldn't stand the sound of it. Um, so for me, the, it's easier to deal with that heat, which I'm sure is also affecting my comprehension, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> right. It's, it's easier and more tolerable to deal with that than with the sound. So for, you know, different strokes for different folks and all that, but it definitely does make a difference. So I want to talk a little bit about just you as a person with all of you, like you're in education, you create, you seem like what I always call like the, the creative mind, like you're like ravenous in all these different areas and you want to do so many things and you, and you do so many things. Um, what is that kind of like for you? Like you're kind of focusing in on things, but leaving yourself open to like these really cool new um, ways to connect your different passions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I guess the way I kind of look at it and the way I'm looking at it right now is I'm preparing for graduation and stuff like that. Um, I'm actually doing a lot of job hunting right now in the nonprofit sector in Denver, um, working with um, LGBTQIA plus organizations as a trans woman, right, focusing on giving back to that community and or working with, um, you know, a couple of nonprofits in the music industry. Um, there are some cool nonprofits around like Nathaniel Rateless Marigold Foundation, which focuses on food insecurity in Denver and working with artists to help combat that, you know, places like Youth on Record or stuff like that. Um, so that's sort of, that's where I'm looking to focus my work currently. Um, it's a way to instantly give back to the community. But a lot of these projects for me, like the acoustic design, or I'd love to actually be designing and, you know, building and selling my own modular synthesizer module someday, um, are things that I'm going to be sort of working on in the background and in my free time with my life, um, sort of around whatever job I have. Um, cause I guess for me, as long as I'm doing a job that's meaningful to me, it doesn't have to be directly related to like any one of those interests, as long as there's time for me to pursue them sort of on my own and in the background when I have the time and the money to do so. Cause some of this stuff takes an upfront investment that I as a college student do not have right now. <laughs> yeah, um, so that's nice, though. It's a nice way to look at your life as, like, these ongoing passions that will grow over time. And Yeah. You I know, it's easy to be really impatient, right, when you graduate. And you're like, I want to do everything right now, all at once. Mm -hmm. I, I think I have my parents to thank a lot for that one as sort of, um, you know, for helping me put into perspective that, like, you know, when I went into school, um, when I went into college, that is, I was like, I just want to be like a professional musician and, you know, all of this and just be, like, making my own music and touring and maybe working in a studio if I need to um, you know, make money if yeah, I'm not making enough from touring, right? But actually, you know, both of my parents have these passions where they, um, that they do, that they pursue, you know, probably multiple hours every day, um, but they don't work in them and they don't, um, 
you know, they do work that's meaningful to them in other areas and they have time and money to put into their passion projects. And then if those passion projects come to make them money, that's awesome. If not, they're still enjoying them, right? And so that's a, very much how I've modeled my life too, is the idea that, you know, sometimes it's best not to try and monetize your passions because it can help you stay more passionate in them for longer. Mm-hmm. And then you don't put that pressure on yourself. Exactly. To like, you have to succeed in them even it's before like, you oh know It's not like, oh, my God, is. I have to put out a song this month. I haven't put yes. anything out yet, and I need to pay my bills, right? It's right. like, oh, I have a stable job, and I can make music at my own pace. Right, and I enjoy my day-to-day life. <laughs> right, when it becomes work, it's not fun anymore. Exactly. Yes. I know, for so many people, especially if they've had, you know, some success in an area, and then they're like, well, I have to do it more, and now I hate it. <laughs> it's so sad to see that play out. Um, but that's neat that your parents really modeled that. I think a lot of people struggle with that very balance in their life of of work and what does that mean? How do you find something you like even if it's not, you know, the thing you thought you'd do as a child or something, you know, that sort of typical passion. That's neat that they support you in that way and also model that for you. Yeah. I think in in my, in our family growing up, it was like sort of encouraged to have a bunch of different passions. Um you know, I played a number of sports as a kid from baseball to hockey to one unfortunate year at age seven trying to play basketball to <laughs> um, um, to eventually, you know, in high, all throughout high school as a cross-country runner, right? And those were all things I enjoyed. And at different times, I ended up stopping them, um, not because it wasn't like, oh, I don't like this anymore, but because it was like, oh, I'm not quite into this enough to justify, you know, like having to make a commute to an ice rink or something like this, right? And Oh, yeah. Um, Hockey is inconvenient. <laughs> yeah. Still, still love the sport. Still yeah, go watch the avalanche every so often. Um, and you know, Czech heritage, the Czechs are huge on hockey. It's sort of our national sport. So, um, but, you know, but so I think, you know, the early experiences like that, um, really helped me to realize that like, it's okay to have things that you like for a bit and then you fall off of them or things that you like. And you're like, I don't want to pursue this at entirely like the most serious level it can be. Right. I'm fine with this being something that I sort of pursue with, you know, 10% 10% of my energy, right? Or mm-hmm. whatever it turns out to be the right amount. It can be a really hard balance to strike. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Especially in the pas- passionate industries like music, just, you can get taken advantage of because, because of the passion that you have for oh, it. Oh, absolutely. And, you know. mm-hmm. Right, exactly. I yeah. know, do it Exposure. for free. Or, yeah. Um, yeah, it's easy to take advantage <laughs> when people are so hungry to, to be out there in front of people. Right, and there's this, you know, as musicians, you know, we all joke about the do it for exposure thing, but I'm sure that most of us have done it for exposure once or twice before, right? Because it's like when you do, when you have this passion, you're like, I would really prefer to be getting paid for this, but also I kind of just want to perform, right? And mm-hmm. it's like, um, and so I think by giving yourself, like not having a time frame on your, especially like your individual creative music, right? You know, working in a studio like this or something is, uh, that's a little bit easier if you have a passion in it, right? Because it's not just reliant on your creativity as an artist, right? But I think when it comes to your own personal music, unless you happen to be one of those um, wunderkinds who gets like super famous at age 17 and mm-hmm. it's just like set from there for their music career, like I think it's important to allow yourself to take it slow and not make it your whole life because you probably won't burn out um, anywhere near as quickly. Yeah, well, like music created in a vacuum, uh, to use a turn of phrase, is, is usually a little a little better, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And a lot of people are always chasing that first record. 
if especially if they see a huge amount of success with it and fans are sometimes disappointed uh pretty immediately because of that pressure but yeah i, I mean know. as far as albums go i'm a huge believer that um singles eps those can be a collection of songs but i think an album has to tell some sort of story or have some sort of unifying thematic element and so i think and i think a lot of times the pressure that is either put on by independent artists that feel like they really have to put something out or record labels that are, you know, if you are a band or an artist signed to a label, forcing you to put out an album as a part of your contract. That's so much what leads to dissatisfying albums for the fans is because like, you know, there's actually, there's not the level of thought put into it to make it a unified, cohesive whole as a work, right? As opposed to just a collection of eight to 10 songs, right? Um, and I think if you look at a lot of the sort of indie artists who made it big with like, um, by putting out an album or a mixtape or something like that, um, you'll find that those are projects that actually have a unifying theme or a story versus like, you know, people, independent artists putting out an album to put out an album and, you know, there's not so much there. Mm -hmm. I think, and definitely for the listener, I just remember when I would buy CDs, you know, in middle school and listen to them, you'd just enter this world, like the album was this world you would go into with your headphones, like on the bus and... I loved that feeling. I think people still like that feeling. Yeah, I mean, I know I'll be taking the bus home from here and I've got my headphones with me and a couple albums on my phone that I might listen to. So mm -hmm. um, I definitely, I mean, I Spotify like the rest of everyone else. Uh, well, <laughs> right. minus one. But <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, but even still, like, you know, Spotify is all about its playlist, but I tend to just pick an album and put that on and just sort of let it ride out. So mm -hmm. Cool. Um, well, I think we have to begin our wrap-up process for the recording. Um, but before we get into our what are we listening to this week, um, do you have anything coming up with Libache or just any other events you want to let everyone know about? Um, not really any events right now as we're still coming out of the pandemic at yes. this time. <laughs> um, hopefully by the time um, time this comes out, we'll be a little closer. I know most of the music scene is really looking at fall 2021 to come back. And then I expect you might see me at the Black Box or a couple other, you know, local um, electronic music venues in Denver. Um, I do put up music semi-frequently and hopefully more often on my Bandcamp, um, which is bandcamp.com slash heylibashe. Um, again, H-E-Y and then L-I-B-U-S-E. Um, that same at, you know, heylibashe can be used to find me anywhere, um, SoundCloud, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, Reddit, a bunch, <laughs> bunch of different places. Um, it's actually managed the rare feat of getting it everywhere. Um, so it's awesome. <laughs> a weird enough name. Um, so that's probably the best place to follow me as I'm putting stuff out. Again, I'm in a little bit of a transitional phase as I'm moving my workflow around, but I am trying to make music still in that time. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's probably, that's about it for me in, as far as that goes. Oh, nice. Cool. All right, so we uh, end all of our podcasts by just going around kind of the room and just saying what we're listening, what we've been listening to this week. Um, yeah, so who wants to start, Emily? So I've been actually listening to Florence on the Machine, um, her first album, Lungs. I was like, oh, Babs. <laughs> Babs's signature groan. Yeah, she's laying on my lap, by the way, for the audience. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> anyway, that, that album is actually really nostalgic for me. I listened to it a lot in middle school. I've just been re-listening to it, and it's just, it's great. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I guess I'll go. As for me, 
Um, I've re recently been revisiting one of my favorite albums from the 80s, which is by this group called Sarbonera, um, which were, um, they were active in the early 80s um, in Hamburg, two women who mm. did this very interesting combination of um, early electronic music and world music by um, working with a lot of uh, session musicians from the local immigration center um, in Hamburg wow. during that time. And so you find a very interesting influence of Arabic um, musical styles mixed in with sort of like the Western, you know, the rise of synth pop and um, and synthesizers that was going on in the 80s at that time. Um, I've also been listening to a bunch of the new music that has been coming out from DOS, that is D-O-S-S. Um, she is an amazing sort of electronic music producer who has come back after a long hiatus um, and is making some really nice, very melancholic electronic music um, that I highly recommend. Um, there may, you know, it sort of seems like she might be preparing for an album to come out. She's been releasing a lot of singles recently. Um, so definitely something to watch out for. Uh, I've been listening to um, Hiromi, a lot of like jazz jazz piano stuff. Uh, well, I guess I've I kind of been working on that myself. So trying <laughs> to increase my musicianship. And yes. then that's like, it's just so inspiring. <laughs> Facility on the instruments. Mind-boggling. Yes. We love when you sit down at the... Piano in the end. So lovely. Um, I've been listening to, this is a repeat from a few weeks ago, or maybe now it's a month ago, um, but I've been listening to the Secret Sisters so much this week especially, just really on repeat. Um, but then also, I brought this up yesterday, I've been listening to a bunch of samba and bossa nova because I think we should do our, our intro song in that style and maybe a doghouse album. Of bossa nova music. I feel like we have all the elements. We would just need to see if Lauren wanted to sing in Spanish. Yes. Call it bossa nova babs. Bossa nova babs. Oh, bossa nova. We were we were playing with this exact name, but oh, I love it. Perfect, that. perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, Gwen, we want to thank you for coming in and speaking with us. Of Emily, course. Emily highly recommended you as a podcast guest. Yeah, thank, I can see why. <laughs> thank you for having me on. Yeah, Emily and I have worked on a bunch of projects together at school for like the past three years. Um, so definitely a lot of working experience together. Nice. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rocky Mountain Mixdown. For more information on any of the topics we discussed this week, look us up online at doghousemusic.com or your favorite social media platform. 